You're listening to K-Squid, Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. Many voices, community radio. This is Story Behind the Story. I'm your host, Clara Shirley Appel, and my guest today is poet, translator, and educator Kent Latham. Kent was born in 1984 to a single working mother and an anonymous sperm donor father, and he is a Central Coast native. His writing has appeared in over 50 literary journals, zines, and anthologies, including Plowshares, Prairie Schooner, Fence, and Poetry Quarterly. A Pushcart Prize nominee and two-time recipient of the Knudsen Family Endowed Scholarship for Creative Writing, he has been a featured reader at the Massachusetts Poetry Festival, the Monterey Poetry Festival, the U35 and Breakwater Reading Series, Burden Beckett Books, and more. He currently teaches at California State University, Monterey Bay, where he is a faculty advisor for In the Oars, a student-run undergraduate literary arts journal. Kent Latham, welcome to Story Behind the Story. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. Well, I'm really glad to, I'm really excited to talk to you. Um, I heard you read at the Monterey Poetry Festival, as as we sort of mentioned in your introduction, and you read such a wide range of work with with so many different themes and so many different styles. And I just it just really caught my eye. So as I was looking through then the work on your website and some of what you sent me, I was struck by the sheer volume of poetry that you've written. Talk to me about your experience of that sort of creative impulse. What motivates you to write and do you experience urgency as you're doing it? Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up the idea of kind of a, a range of, of topics and themes and styles in my work because I've continuously been trying to build a full-length manuscript, you know, the, the eventual first mm. book um, over far too many years now since since grad school. And I've tried all sorts of different organizing principles for it, you know, alphabetical by title, sequential from, you know, like like a crown sequence where the last line of the first poem leads into the next line of the first, the next poem in whatever ways they do. And finally, this last year, I've come to hopefully permanently believe that I do have some more singular common themes that I have sequences and suites that can go together around more focused topics that mm. seem to be persistent in my life. Uh, you know, so for example, one of them is my mother, one of them is my father, one of them is my own embodiment, one of them is um kind of the idea of of things we lose, people we lose, right, elements of our lives that we lose. And then, you know, yeah, trying to trying to deal with larger global, social, national issues as well, you know, anytime those pop up. But I definitely feel like I have increasingly tried to actually narrow my focus into these somewhat obsessive topics, but drawing out a singular theme more rather than dabbling around in a dozen different themes. <laughs> so as you move from that sort of, pardon the term, but that sort of more sort of dilettante approach and looking like looking broadly into that sort of more focused approach, how has that changed the way that you write and the way that you sort of approach the task of like sitting down and putting words on a page? So I've, I've always been a like ridiculously undisciplined writer in terms of sitting down and putting words on a page. <laughs> like I, I have absolutely no routine, no consistency. And like, I will write today or I will write every third day or I will write on days that end in Y or whatever it might be. Um, I've got, I've got just nothing other than waiting for random inspiration, trying to, you know, get motivated by who I'm reading, what I'm, what I'm thinking about. But the good part that 
narrowing and focusing and condensing my themes has done for that is it allows me to start trying to build more consistent kind of formal scaffolds. Mm. So for example, 10 years ago, I wrote a poem titled Dear Dad that was kind of a letter style address to my anonymous, never, never met father. And I thought that that was going to be just a one-off poem. And now I've got, I think, six or seven poems with that title that are now kind of this ongoing apostrophe to my father. And every time I think about some new idea that I want to talk about hypothetically to this to this character, to this persona, I'm able to plug in that form. I'm able to kind of go back to that and say like, okay, I already know how this poem can start. I have no idea where it's going to end, but I know how to start writing it. Right. So it gives you that starting point and that uh, that sort of place to jump in. Exactly. Exactly. Like I never I never know what the what the uh, the question is going to be where it ends, but I know what the answer is going to be where it starts. So one other thing that I think is is notable about you is that except for when you sort of left for college and graduate school, you've spent most of your life right here in the Monterey Peninsula. And so I was curious both about what what attracts you to this region, because you came back, and also how you think growing up here shaped your writing. Anybody, I, I, so I went to school in um, Pacific Grove from K through 12. I actually lived in Carmel Valley, but my mom taught in the Pacific Grove School District. Uh, so I, I got to uh, go to school there. And anyone who's been in PG knows that it is a tiny little town. It is famous for butterflies and tourists mm-hmm. and like not much else on the cosmic sense. And so like many of my uh, classmates in high school, like the most exciting thing in the world was to get away. And as soon as I went to college up in Washington State, went to grad school in Boston, lived in Pennsylvania for a year, moved back to Boston, moved back to California. I was like, the whole time I was away, I knew I wanted to come back. There was something just deep in my in my blood that said the Central Coast was a magical place and a, a, a beautiful, powerful place. Um, and I always knew I was going to want to come back here sooner than later. I think that, I mean, a, a lot of that was just familiarity and consistency. Right. And it's, it's, it's the place I know best. So therefore I have the vocabulary of it. I can write about our, our sagebrush and chaparral and local birds and fish and critters and things and feel like I know that, I know that language um, in a way that I didn't ever feel comfortable writing about places in other geographies. Um, I think the other part about how this place has shaped my language though, or shaped my writing is for such a small community, um, it's so just absurdly rich in art and culture and history and and the legacy of what's been here. Um, You know, like growing up steeped in Robinson Jeffers and John Steinbeck and Robert Louis Stevenson when he passed through and Jack London when he passed through and all of these, you know, Henry Miller, all of these giants like on whose shoulders I got to you know kind of like perch growing up gave me a sense that yeah anybody can invest in this legacy anybody can bring inspiration out of it um and so I'm not sure that it necessarily informs my writing now in an obvious way but I think that it helped to get me where I am uh growing up for sure yeah, I can sort of, I can see that. It's really interesting to hear you talk about the the legacy of Monterey Bay. As For me, as somebody who is a transplant, I came from L.A. originally, but have like lived all over. <laughs> it, it's just sort of interesting to think beyond the sort of really big names that we we sort of 
hear from the outside, right? Like I think I knew about Steinbeck, but I don't, I certainly didn't know about half the others. I was curious when you were talking before about uh, trying to come up with an organizing system for your writing and for getting it into shape to be a book. I'm curious about some of the, some of those approaches that you rejected and why you rejected them. Could you talk about that a little? <laughs> yeah. Um, my, my positive side of the response to that is I, I don't know if this is an apocryphal story or if it's true, but someone, someone told me once that Walt Whitman got the first edition of Leaves of Grass back from the printer, or, you know, the first one that he hadn't self, self-printed at least, and got the first, the first copy back, cracked the spine, tore out the pages and started rearranging it and shuffling out poems and revising poems. And like he he couldn't he couldn't sit comfortably with the finished product. It just it wasn't mm. ever done, you know. And and then there was the second edition, then there was a third edition, and you know, and they were all completely different animals based on how his poetry kept evolving, even if it was the same poem. So I I use that as my my inspiration to counter the utter just frustration and despair of the fact that every six months I take what I thought was a great manuscript. And then realize that it was terrible and tear it apart and, you know, get rid of half the poems and put in a new half. Um, and it becomes this kind of Frankenstein monster that just keeps getting stitched back together every time it explodes. I think that where I'm feeling more comfortable finding themes and finding organizing principles that I do value, that I do I do believe in more, more and more. Uh, I hate to say it's it's age, but I'm 30, you know, I'm 38 now. And I think where I am at 38 versus where I was at 28 or at 18 or, you know, what, what have you has just given me a literally longer quantity of time to live with the themes and ideas and forms and shapes that are turning out to last uh, rather than the ones that are turning out to, to have flitted away in the night. It's, it's about, um, of creating myself just as much as it's about creating a book mm. or a, a a theme um you know i think that in grad school college and grad school i always thought that like finding your voice as a writer meant finding the way you would sound on the page or in a breath and i didn't really realize that finding your voice also meant finding the things you would be vocalizing like finding the the con the content yeah, I think that's really interesting. And I, I was curious also because I saw that um, one of the courses that you have taught a few times at CSU is on sort of the publishing industry and and prepping poetry and writing for submission. And I'm kind of curious how like how you how you balance those things with like, here is the narrative that I want to tell about myself versus like, here is what I know are the expectations of the industry. Yeah, I think that it, for me at least, it has always been just like stupidly easier to be able to edit other people's work, to see other people's mm. themes and other people's quirks and other people's ideas that should go together this way, not that way, and to offer suggestions. Um, I am either blessed or cursed with like a really quick uh, workshop kind of I, like I can, you know, I can read someone's poem and say, oh, I think you should do this. And like, maybe I will disagree with that idea 10 minutes later, but like, <laughs> I, I see it quickly enough to, to be able to be able to start a conversation, all of that in a way that I can't do with my own work. Um, I absolutely don't have a strong enough capacity rapidly to turn that lens around on my, on myself and say, oh, like I've written a poem, here's draft. 
wow, I can see exactly how this fits into my larger body of work or into my manuscript or whatever. Like, I mean, like it, it needs to percolate and marinate for months, if not years in my own drawers. Whereas being able to say, oh, like editing the, the student journal or not editing, um, advising as faculty advisor for the student journal at CSUMB, you know, I can say, okay, here are the submissions we've got. Like, it's up to the student editors to decide how they ought to go, but I can suggest, well, maybe this one seems like it's talking to that one, or these two seem like they bounce off each other. What do you think? You know, in, in a way that I just have to get a lot more distance with for myself. I'm too, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure this is true of most writers, but you know, you're, you're too, you're too close to the subject. Yeah. Well, and I think that's interesting too, because, uh, while, while your poetry is fairly sort of broad in terms of different sort of styles and different um, themes, I would say the majority of it is fairly personal and interior. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's it's probably partly um, just a way of knowing that I can't afford therapy, so I might as well write <laughs> poems instead. I don't know, and, and I like I, I say that you know as a joke, but at the same time. Um, in in school, when I was studying poetry, and, and I mean this with no disrespect to any of my professors who were all wonderful, brilliant poets and great teachers, but there were frequently repeated claims that like therapy poetry isn't legit. That, you know, like mm. it has it it has to move. Like if if you're doing it for yourself, that's not a good enough reason. You ought to be doing it for all of humankind, all of the good of you know the canon, all of literary legacy forever. I'm like, no, actually, if it keeps me alive for another 24 hours, that's that's equally valid. If it helps me figure out what I'm struggling with, that's equally valid. Well, and so many of so many of those claims, right, like the uh, sort of poo-pooing of confessional poetry, right, like those come from a place of, of sexism and from a place of privilege. And it's interesting how how much those are still being replicated, even as there's so much more knowledge about um yeah, about like where that gatekeeping comes from. Exactly. Um, and I think that that's that's another thing that has that as my my life has evolved in parallel with my work, um, I didn't I didn't come out as queer until uh, five years ago, give or take, mm. I think. Um, and so, you know, again, like that idea of like, oh, well, I wasn't writing queer identified or identifying poems. So I didn't have to worry about the gatekeeping that said, don't write queer identifying poems. I didn't, right. uh, you know, like I wasn't thinking about some of these issues in the same ways. Um, I wasn't thinking about like toxic masculinity as it affects men's bodies as an issue. And now that's something that's very much on my mind. And so I'm writing a lot of poems about it that just weren't, I wasn't told I couldn't write them before because I wasn't trying to write them before. Um, and so I was coming from that place of privilege. Now, finally, you know, kind of doing the reverse of a lot of my students, a lot of the students that I work with in the classroom are starting off asking if they can break these barriers at the beginning before right. they kind of develop their voice or their craft. Like they're, they're already starting with their themes. And I've kind of had to work backwards to find my themes after my craft, which is very strange. It, it's interesting though. And I think it, right. Like I, I think that sort of hits on some of the things that intuitively like attracted me to your poetry at the at the reading right like I think there's it you are coming from a very different place than a lot of poets and like you said it, it can almost be seen as a working backwards and I, I think that makes it interesting and it, it sort of sheds a new light on process but before we get 
too far into process stuff. I, I think we actually should hear one of your poems. Um, so if you don't mind, I think the first one that I'd like for you to read for us is Dear Dad. And you mentioned earlier that there's now like a series of Dear Dad poems. Can you maybe situate this for us in that series? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so again, they're they're all called Dear Dad. They're all all starting with that kind of that letter postcard style address. Um, this was the first one I wrote. So this one had not intended to have an, like uh, a mm -hmm. continuing sequence attached to it. Um, this was back in, you know, I want to I want to say 2010, somewhere around there, 11. There is a bit of, I guess, artifice is the word. I never actually had the job that I mentioned having in this poem, but mm -hmm. it was close enough to work I've done. It was kind of, you know, it's it's the it's the truth in fiction, like it's right, right. You know, I'm not. This not a literal autobiography but it's authentic to the life i'm living so i like to i like to think of it that way um which is partly why it will end the way it will end so dear dad today is my birthday at work they sang to me and amanda and pepe brought donuts for everyone i realize this means nothing to you when is your birthday what do you do I work in the Language Resource Center at a small junior college. I explain things to people who don't understand. Today, I corrected an exchange student who thought medical was miracle. The difference was surprisingly hard to explain. What else have you given? Bone marrow? Blood? Does your driver's license have the little dot, meaning they'll bury you with a coffin closed? Or will you be burned? I don't want to be burned. I've seen Lebowski. Do you like movies? Last week, I watched The Kids Are All Right, which featured Mark Ruffalo as the sperm donor dad for Nett Benning and Julianne Moore's two kids. It was odd thinking about getting in touch with you. Don't worry. I won't. Each man is an island, and whatever we throw into the sea belongs to the sea. I hope you are well. I hope the weather is good where you are. Today is my birthday. My name is. Join KSQD every Wednesday morning for the award-winning program on being, hosted by Krista Tippett. What does it mean to be human? How do we want to live? And who will we be to each other? Each week, On Being explores these questions with a new discovery about the immensity of our lives. On Being airs Wednesday at 9 a.m. here at KSQD 90.7 FM. Many voices. One station. So as you were setting this up, one of the things that you mentioned was that sort of like truth and fiction, right? Like this was not really, uh, this wasn't an actual job you had, but it was close. And I sort of, that like hit a light bulb in my head for what you were talking about earlier about like trying to find the, the organizing principle that allowed you to create this self-narrative. And I'm curious how that plays through, I mean, you talked about this one particular job in this one, but like how that plays through the rest of this poem and how that plays through your poetry in general. It's actually, it's, it's funny. Like I can, I can give you a much better, a much clearer answer to this with some other poems about my mom uh, than I necessarily can about my father in that the ones about my father are already so hypothetical. Like I know, I know right. how tall the guy was and what color eyes he had. And like, that's it. And so kind of everything else that I know about this other character um, is, is imaginary basically for me. Like I can, I can create what I need to bounce off of in my work. And so I think that that has often kind of allowed me in those particular poems 
to do the same backward to myself. Like I, if I'm creating this other person, then they might be imagining who I am in the same way, which then allows us both to play around in the realm of the hypothetical, the realm of the, we create ourselves for each other. You know, I mean, I, there's also just the, the things that any, any, any poet will steal like a raccoon from, you know, the world around us. I mean, the exchange student who thought the word medical was the word miracle mm. in the poem was actually some like little kid that I heard on the Boston tea going, you know, home one day. I was like, oh, that's a fantastic word swap mistake, you know, yeah. a misunderstanding. Um, like, I'll steal that and put it in a poem for someone who would make a similar mistake. Right. And I mean, I think there is also a lot of pertinence to to write like what this poem is about, which is you talking about a father who you don't know, right? Like a, a biological father who who you haven't really had as as a familial father. Right. I, yeah, I was I was really interested in the way that the different themes of this poem unfold and interact because it I mean, there were sort of two things. One, it overtly, like explicitly is uh set up as this is right like a, a quest to know the other person to know the father right but the way like the way that each question is is sort of followed by a much longer kind of diegesis on who you are right like so much of it is really about wanting to be known as well but also right like the the sort of way that it's split into these different, these sort of different themes about what you want to know and be, be known around, right? Like it starts with the sort of birth and life, right? Like when's your birthday? What's your life? Like goes almost immediately into death and then into this sort of like family realm before it sort of moves into this recognition that all of this curiosity and this desire is going to be unfulfilled, right? Like the hope that's there at the end is present throughout, right? Like we we sort of get that all of this is hoping. So th there's something really bittersweet to that. And I just, I kind of wanted to hear you talk about it yourself. I mean, I love all of your uh, your comments and, and recognitions of how it moves uh, because I think this is one of the the, the cheats that, that poets often get to enjoy <laughs> is hearing someone else you know, or sort of, you know, working with someone else who's like, oh, I love what you did. You're like, wow, you're right. I did. I totally did. Yeah, that was intentional every single time. No, um, I, I do think that there's a lot of intuitive metaphor making, though, that goes into, yeah. you know, the poems that succeed, whether like I, I won't go, I won't be as narcissistic as to call them successful poems if I've written them, but the ones that at least have survived to get published and to get shared, where I don't necessarily always intend or intend in advance the structure the skeleton the the chapter one chapter two chapter three you know right, kind right. of scaffolding i think that especially with these father poems kind of mystery father poems the fundamental idea is do our parents create us you know not not at a biological level that's a given um but at a individual at a, at a personality level um what do i owe to somebody I have literally never met and can never meet. Um, and so this idea of like, well, I can only have questions for that person and I can only offer answers from myself. Well, the only reason I'm asking the questions is because I must be questioning my own answers. Like, am I mm. who I should have become? Am I who I would have become if this person had been present in my life? Am I also someone who would do this for someone else um, the way he did for me? 
you know, is, is the kind of question it's like, okay, like I, I hope that someone else out there is asking those questions back, uh, you know, in, into the void, into the sea. And so, you know, I think that one of the other ways that I deal with that, you know, at a more craft level and more kind of like how the poem actually happened is by bringing in the choir of the rest of the world, whether it's, you know, co-workers or students or the DMV or pop culture, you know, movies, Big Lebowski, John Donne, as, as pop culture as John Donne could be, I guess. Um, and, you know, and saying like, well, if I can't actually have a conversation with a singular real person on the other side of this poem, then I can let everybody else in the world stand in for them as an illusion, as a reference, as a kind of a, a quote or, or a member of the chorus. Uh, you know, the kind of the, the Greek chorus, you know, they're all like, oh, well, he's not here to answer for you on stage, but we can all say something like, OK, there we go. Yeah, I like that a lot. I like the I, I just I like that idea of cause this is like built into language, too. Right. Like when there is no specificity, when there is no uh, singular referent, then right, like you do automatically open up to to anyone possible to like anyone possible, right? Like it 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 just the scope of it shifts from from like one to everyone almost instantly. I, I wanted to ask you about the ending because both because you mentioned it and because I think it is just so striking. So yeah, I mean tell me about that, right? Like you you have this sort of bookend of today is my birthday, but after that sort of repetition at the end, there's my name is, and that's that's where it stops. So what's going on here? It's funny. Uh, in an earlier draft, and I'm I'm slightly horrified to think that it might have been the published draft that, that came out in the journal Softblow, I had actually given my first name. Um, and my family has this very just like quirky, eclectic tradition uh, for at least two generations of going by our middle names, not our first names. Mm. And so like, I am Kent that's my middle name, but that's like who I am. That's how I identify. That's how I introduce myself to my students, my friends and whatever. And then I kind of like have this like, oh, only the government, like only the IRS and the DMV know about like this mysterious first name that, you know, that no one else would ever recognize me. I mean, if, if someone calls and goes by my first name, I know it's a scam, <laughs> you know? So I had actually used my first name in an early draft of this poem, you know, and it just said, you know, I hope you're well. I hope the weather is good where you are. Today's my birthday. My name is Nathaniel. And I liked that because I knew what it was doing. I knew right. what it meant. And I knew that someone reading the poem would see that this was by Kent Latham. And they'd be like, oh, who the hell is Nathaniel? Okay, maybe, you know, and like the reader would start to question what had just happened. Like they wouldn't, it wouldn't right. make sense to them the way it made sense to me. And so that was way, the more I thought about it, I was like, that's way too insular. That's like, I mean, that's, mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a poor, you know, a good idea in a poor draft. Um, or a poor idea and a good draft or whatever. Um, and so finally I realized, of course, that the name has to go. Like the the silence, the the white space, the anything could be written in here, like a mad lib, um, anybody mm. could be written in, uh, is the way the poem needs to to end. It needs to be an open ending. My name is myriad. My name is infinite. My name is anybody who's walking down the street next to you, you know. Right. And that goes back too to the like you know, what do you inherit from this person and how are you creating yourself? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's really interesting. <laughs> uh, so obviously this is, this is a pretty personal poem and one that is very strongly situated in your sort of biographical details. And so I was curious what role identity in, in its many forms, not just in this one plays in your writing. 
Yeah, I think it's I think it's very central. Um, it's funny. I was just reading, going backward through uh, Robert Hass's essays. Um, for some reason, I've I've missed over many years uh, his first big collection, Twentieth uh, Century Pleasures. And so I was just I've just been reading that, and had read his piece about Stanley Kunitz and how uh, he compares Wallace Stevens' poetry as this very like outward looking lyrical kind of static vision with Kunitz who is very confessional and inward looking like Kunitz mm-hmm. is always looking into his own pain his own family his own dy- you know like struggles and issues you know year after year after year i don't i mean i don't know if we even still have schools in american poetry um mm. you know like the confessionals or the modernists or the imagists or the you know what have you the black mountain but um i think that I would probably tag myself as being most closely aligned with confessional uh, poetry in that I tend to put myself at the heart of it. You know, whether whether I'm talking about myself explicitly in a poem or not, my relationships at least are, you know, to to people, to the world, to ideas, to 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 whatnot, are always going to be at the center. I, I really want that to be not a like narcissistic solipsistic like i i am at the middle because i matter most but almost in the opposite like i matter least therefore the only thing i can know is looking through my own like eyes outward yeah like everything else it's almost like there there are discussions in journalism around this too where right like the the more sort of you pretend at objectivity right like all these early attempts to remove the journalist from uh, from the article, right? Like it really just hides that. It obscures all, all, all of their biases and all of the things that they're thinking. And it kind of makes them, it, it is self-aggrandizing in a certain way because in obscuring those, it's taking those and making those some like universal fact. So I buy that at least. <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, and as you know, like, I mean, okay, we, we just lost Joan Didion a couple of weeks mm. ago and, um, you know, the, the new journalism style that, you know, the, dovetails with what you're talking about where this idea of like no like the author the author isn't of central importance but the author's recognition of their centrality is crucially important to being truthful rather than necessarily factual yeah and i think there are these sort of interesting discussions going on in criticism right now about about the sort of role and placement of of death of the author Right. Like, (laughs) especially now when it's so easy to access living authors, it's almost like you're getting you're you're getting this like pendulum swing way in the other direction where people not only expect authors like they expect to have some sort of I'm going to say author way too much, but like authorial authority. (laughs) Right. Like there is the sort of expectation of authority that like the author has the final say on what they're doing, but also that authors are to be held to account to that to some extent. Right. Like the the interpretations that previously fell under death of the author of like, here is somebody interpreting this and recognizing it as their own interpretation are suddenly being attributed back to the author. So I don't know. I just I think this is a really interesting time to be alive and to be in a sort of literary circle because these things that we thought of as so simple as like there's one point of view and here's everybody else that they're, they're getting really blended. Yeah, absolutely. I I feel like I'm gonna I'm gonna jump ahead in your your plan here, your 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 order of operations uh, by mentioning translation as as a concept and as a thing that I oh, do. Yeah. You know, we're all, we're all leading here very very carefully. Um, but I think that that idea of where is the author in relation to the reader, in relation to the text, 
is something that I like probably consciously have to think about a lot more in my translation work because I am not the author and yet mm. I still am and yet I'm not. Um, and I have no idea who my reader might be or when my reader might be or, you know, uh, how, how their relationships to me and to the text that I'm translating uh, are going to interfere or interact or complicate the whole dynamic. Well, so let's do that. Let's go, let's go skip ahead. Um, Cause I, I was so interested. I think you had a line in your email where you sent me the things that you were interested in reading where you, you talked about some of your, you referred to some of your translations as legit and other ones as, as I as presumably not legit. And I, I, I just thought that was so such a fascinating way to think about it. And so I kind of wondered uh, if, if you would talk, first of all, like generally about the way that you approach translations and like what your general philosophy is. And then when you're done with that, I'm going to ask you some questions about some specific poems you've translated. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so <laughs> I think my my kind of loose use of legitimacy, like as, as a self-applied label for some of my translations is it's more about where I've done the work that can be most uh, can be perceived as being most correct to the original text versus work that is kind of simply inspired by the original text mm. in a much looser, uh, you know, more of a rendition, more of a version. And really going going back to the, the previous uh, comments that we were talking about with Death of the Author and kind of like the generational changes through American poetry and and including how American translators have brought the world into American poetry and how that has then changed American poetry, um, because this is the only place I've lived and written from, and therefore I, I you know I won't even begin to dare talk about the rest of the world's uh, schools or styles. But like, you know, okay, we mentioned Joan Didion. Now that she's dead, we can talk about Robert Bly. Now that he's dead, finding out that Bly like was hugely instrumental in bringing world poetry in translation to American readers in the 50s, the 60s, mm. the 70s, every time he had a new journal title. And yet knowing that a lot of his translations are pretty suspect in retrospect uh, in terms of like their, their uh, accuracy to the original source texts. And so for, for my work, I don't necessarily love the translations I've done that are more accurate, are more legitimate as scholarly renditions. Fidelity as, to the original. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like even if it keeps the poetry, even if it keeps the music and the and the joie de vivre of the original text, they seem more like academic exercises that, you know, that I am, I am merely the conduit bringing this poem to a modern audience. Okay, great. The ones that I really love messing with more are the ones where it's like, okay, I know the original text, may, you know, and like, and I've tried to share it in some way for a modern audience, contemporary audience, but I've also tried to make it representative of our current moment in Mm. time, where it's not just here is what they wrote in 1475, but here is what we're talking about in 2022 with a nod to 1475. Well, one of my favorite works of modern translation, which is a weird category to have in your brain, but whatever, is um, the Emily Wilson translation of the Odyssey. And there's a 90-page translator's note in that, which is so insightful and fascinating. And I think one of the things that she does that I find so interesting is, like, the way that she thinks about fidelity in translation is so so different from that, like, kind of stodgy, traditionalist way of thinking about fidelity. She talks about how, for example 
in choosing a particular translation for the female sort of house slaves that, uh, you know, the, the sort of Greek word for that, that were part of Odysseus's household, so much of the traditional translations allied the fact that they were slaves, or if they don't ally the fact that they were slaves, they allied a lot of sort of what that meant. They allied the hierarchy of different servants and slaves in the time period. And so I think like she does a lot of that stuff. She also has a long conversation on the color of the sea, the color of the, you know, presumably the Mediterranean that I think is is really interesting. But reading that note and reading her translation in general, right, like it, it really sort of flips a switch in your brain about what it means to be accurate in a translation. And I think some of it goes back to to that conversation we were having about, about journalism and, and people like Didion, right, like where so much of that sort of attempt to get to this place of fidelity and, and accuracy really just elides all of the baggage that you're bringing with you into that translation. Right. Exactly. I mean, I can't, I can't assume that I can use white American male English because that's what comes out of my mouth Hmm. to translate anything else, whether it's someone who is also of the same race and ethnicity or time period or gender or class or, you know, what have you much less a whole different country, continent, you know, century, et cetera. I, I do translations for myself almost in that way. Like I'm I'm talking, mm. I'm talking to myself. I'm writing the poem that I would want to be able to read fluently, you know, in a in a language, in a voice that makes sense to me, that feels uh, tangible to me. Um, and so, you know, hoping that it's contemporary and comprehensive. Uh, and accessible enough that enough other people today will be able to find what I'm finding from it. Uh, but also knowing that I'm not Scottish. I'm not mm. any any of a million other things. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm eth- ethnically, ancestrally Scottish, <laughs> but not not for a number of family generations. The word choices I use, you know, even even without making larger, more artistic license, you know, taking taking those liberties, you know, even without really mm. changing a poem, um, just the the fact of the translation is already so radically subjective and yeah, not not selfish, but self infused. The second and fourth Sundays of the month, KSQD presents Faith Matters, hosted by Seth Shapiro. Faith Matters is an interfaith discussion with leaders from a variety of religious and spiritual traditions. The discussion is wide ranging and respectful, and call ins are welcome. Tune in to Faith Matters Sunday evening at 6 on KSQD 90.7 FM and KSQD.org. KSQD, many voices, one station. So I think let's let's talk about some specifics then. I picked the two shorter poems because one of those was the loose translation and one of them wasn't, and they're they're shorter. So I think they can we can talk about them together without getting uh too lost in the weeds. So uh the one that you sent me that you said was sort of more interpretive was uh, Sappho 16. And I, I wondered if you could walk me through what you were doing with that and feel free to, to read all of it or to sort of re- bring in lines as sort of relevant and then maybe compare it with the Gavin Douglas poem in which the ghost of Anchises uh, explains the nature of the anima mundi to Aeneas. Indeed. Yeah, so... For for the Sappho, like I have, I have absolutely no background in Greek. Hmm. 
modern or classical. Like I am, I am not a translator of Greek, you know, or or of Sappho, you know, in that in that kind of like again legitimate. I'm going to go default to that <laughs> word in that legitimate sense. I think that I I justified you know kind of approaching this poem in the way that I did, not calling it a translation. I didn't submit it as a translation. I submitted it as a poem. You know, the, the title is Sappho 16, not Sappho's 16th fragment or a translation of the 16th fragment mm, of Sappho, mm-hmm. you know, anything like that. I was like, no, like this is, you know, this is a cover version of that song by the famous artist that you all know. Hmm. And, and you know, specifically picking the poem that I think of the 170, what have you, fragments of Sappho that are still in existence, this is probably one of, if not the most famous, I think, uh, you know, still to a to Western audience, the idea that some say military force is the most beautiful thing in the world, but, you know, Sappho says, no, it's love, and she goes on to explain why and who and how in what's left of the poem. I wrote this, whatever we want to call it, poem, translation, rendition, probably around, like, in, in, the, in the aughts still. It was, it was before, you know, after 2000 and before 2010. You know, it was that it was that time of we are absolutely at war in all the places and all the ways in America now, looking out at the rest of the world. Right. This idea of what, how should Americans think about American military power and involvement, and you know, what does a global community even mean anymore? Is therefore a question of what does global literature mean? You know, if we're not mm. part of a global community, if we're if we're imperial or still colonizing other countries in, you know, as much as, as we do and did, you know, what does that mean for reading literature from those other countries, even if it's thousands of years old? In this, in this half of translation, I wanted to bring in, you know, kind of the recognition that like, oh yeah, turns out humans have always questioned military involvement uh, and its, its, its uh, legitimacy or veracity or importance. And also looking then at like, Drone strikes, you know, kind of the, you know, the like the thing that Sappho could never have imagined, right? And yet, you know, here we are, uh, still blowing the hell out of innocent people at weddings and at schools and at hospitals that may often have looked like they did three thousand years ago in certain parts of the world. So I think I will ask you to read it. Yeah, absolutely. Briefly, because I think otherwise exactly. I will get murdered by my <laughs> audience. So. Okay, it's, all, it's, all, it's all good. So Sappho sixteen. Some say the army, and some the marines, and some say the air force is the greatest sight sweeping over this crippled earth. But I say love. For example, a wedding, the bride's face hidden as though no longer hers to share, and the sound of wailing. Oh, Anactoria, what have they done, the soldiers, on your wedding day? Thank you. And so, yeah, I mean, you, you just talked a, a bit about what you what you were doing with that, the ways that you changed it. You can hear some of it in there, right? Like Marines and Air Force would not have been <laughs> things that were part of Sappho's uh, worldview at that particular point in time, at least not, not in those precise ways. So, yeah, compare that with the, the sort of other poem that, that you sent me, the Gavin Douglas poem. So Gavin Douglas is one of the authors, one of the the kind of the three primary authors that I've translated the most from the Northern Renaissance, kind of the early, like late medieval, early Renaissance Scotland. Mm. Um, and again, I, I got into this particular 
realm of literature uh, by doing a lot of family genealogy and just being interested in in my Scottish heritage and discovered that, you know, many Americans aren't aware, many you know, English speaking Americans aren't aware that the British Isles aren't divided between English and Gaelic and Welsh, that there's also Scots. And it's a kind of this like mm-hmm. shaggy in-between language where it branched off from early English around like 1350, kind of around Chaucer's time, that um, English went, you know, stayed south and Scots stayed north. And so they share the same grammar, the same syntactical roots, um, and a lot of, you know, a lot, a lot of similar etymologies. But then the specific vocabulary of Scots has always been very different, very unique. What ended up happening was that a lot of people today will look at a Scots language text, whether it's historic or contemporary, and it feels like you should understand it, but you don't quite get it mm. if you don't know the vocabulary, if you don't know the diction. And so it kind of just falls through the cracks. Like it's not it's not foreign enough to merit translation most of the time, but it's not native enough to be understood to a non-Scots speaking audience. And so I was like, wow, I've just like, you know, I haven't discovered this, but I've I've stumbled upon this thing where it's like, here's a whole treasure trove of literature that just isn't getting translated, isn't getting recognized for what it is. The beautiful thing about Gavin Douglas, who lived from 1474 to 1522 in Scotland, was that he was the first Anglo-based translator to create a poetic translation of Ovid's Aeneid. Mm. But he did it into Scots. And so like it blossomed and then it vanished again from people who don't recognize that language for its contributions to Western literature. And not only did he translate the Aeneid, he expanded upon it. He took ridiculous liberties with it. Hmm. Which actually kind of goes goes counter to what I'm doing to his text versus what I did to Sappho. Um, like he was he was the one who's like, oh, I'll add like extra chapters, I'll add prologues to the prologue. All like, you know, I mean, like he'll he's like, if he found an image that he liked from Ovid, he was like, let's go to town on this. Let's just like wax poetic and rhapsodic for as long as possible. And so Gavin Douglas was this brilliant, masterful translator with his own artistic liberties and so i feel much less of a need to bring more of myself to him to ovid kind of the you know thrice removed whereas you know he's already got an english rhythm that i can work with you know it already it already sounds in scots like it does in english to me musically so all i really felt like i needed to do was update the vocabulary and you know some of some of the lines here and there a little bit so that it made more sense in english in modern contemporary american english this uh next piece is like just a tiny little excerpt from book six of the aeneid what douglas called the aeneidus in which aeneas's father is explaining the nature his, his dead father is explaining the nature of like kind of you know the the spirit that binds the world together in a slightly more lyrical way than ovid did in the original Latin. From the beginning, each thing in its place. The fires below, the earth, icy space, the vast windswept plains of the sea, the moon's white flame in the lantern of the sky, the stars like salt, and the sun's hot yoke. In each dwells a spirit, a drop from the lake of divine sustenance, grease for the gears of this world's great engine, 
spread over the years and leagues, commingled, infused into each living thing, man, woman, child, and beast, and birds that swim like fish through the air, and all the sea serpents and monsters that share the uncarved depths below the salt. From the cores of their cells, each one is called to life by these dewdrops, this unguent, this oil, quickened within by the weight of a soul. I really liked what you were saying about, right, like, Douglas already haven't taken all these liberties with it, making it feel in in some ways less like you need to insert yourself. That's, just, that's such an interesting idea to me that, right, like what you're, to some extent, it's because there's already a strong personality here and a strong mediating personality between the original and sort of what we have now. Exactly. I doubt that we'll get, at least within a generation, um, a more kind of definitive title to the sapphic fragments than Ann Carson's translations. But of course, you know, she was responding to all the previous, previous, previous. Right. I was like, okay, like, I'm not going to do the definitive Sappho. Like, there's no way that I can bring an authority to that, uh, to those texts. Um, so I will just riff on Sappho. I'll do like, you know, the, the cover song version of how I think of Sappho in America in, you know, the 2000s um whereas gavin douglas is like yeah he already did the cover song and i'm just like keeping the file from pixelating too far yeah uh, or you know or, or fragmenting like i'm i'm just trying to kind of blow the dust off you're remastering it exactly exactly <laughs> exactly yeah you know and it, it's very strange to even think of translating a translation you know translating a translator but so much of that is exactly what, right? Like these these poems that come from this great oral history, that's exactly what they were. They were passed from person to person before they were ever written down. And so, right, like every every new telling was a translation to some extent. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So I want, I want to make sure we have time for at least one, one more of your poems. Um, so uh, would you mind reading Swarm? This is, this is one of those long breath you know kind of dig big big <laughs> deep breath because it just doesn't stop go from the diaphragm indeed swarm the first time i got stung by a swarm of i was going to say hornets but they're not i know what a hornet is compared to a bee but i'm not entirely sure if a hornet is the same as a wasp i suppose i could look it up but anyway these were yellow jackets built more like a bee but they nest in the ground and don't die the first time they sting you they just keep stinging and stinging there's so many kinds of bees honey and humble and sweat and meat. Though I think meat bees are the same as yellow jackets, maybe. Anyway, I was six, a week before the first day of school. They got caught in my hair and under my shirt and wouldn't stop stinging. I'd ridden over their nest or hive in the woods with my bike. It seems silly now not to know the difference between a hornet and a wasp. My mother has started calling the whole lot of them things. She knows the difference, but the words are slipping away. No one talks about how the mass bee deaths, which is called colony collapse disorder, are affecting the yellow jacket population. I, I suppose people actually are talking about it, but I haven't heard or seen it in the news. When a regular bee stings you, it rips out part of its abdomen and digestive tract and muscles and nerves, and it hurts you to be stung, but it kills the bee. I haven't been stung in 20 or 30 years. I never asked if my mother has been stung. Sometimes the things we fear most never go away. And sometimes you wonder suddenly if maybe they might already be gone. So for listeners who can't see the poem on the page, I, I just want to share a little bit about the way that it appears. It's it's written as a single paragraph with no line breaks, no periods, no commas, which is fitting for the subject matter, right? Like a, a swarm is powerful and it's it's big, but it's undifferentiated. You can't really distinguish between individuals. It's hard to know what to focus on 
and or or what matters <laughs> really even in it. And so I was I was curious to hear you talk about what is the metaphor of the swarm doing for you here? What what are you hoping to evoke with it? It's funny, I didn't actually select this poem as representative of the the sequence I'm working on about my mother or the poem about my father specifically because they were the first ones I'd written in that in those sequences. But this was one of the very first poems, uh, like as it happens, that I wrote about thinking about my mother slowly developing aphasia or dementia or, you know, any kind of loss of self, loss of ability to articulate the self as she ages. Um, and kind of disclaimer for any listeners who may know my mother, she's not there yet, but she's getting there. And so a lot of the poems I'm writing, not not this one specifically or, or uniquely, but a lot of the poems I'm writing about that theme are preemptive. I'm I'm again, creating a persona of someone who is further gone than they actually are in real life so that I can work through those ideas and those relationships and those thoughts so that I'll be ready for it when when the actual reality comes around. Um, And so in this case, the idea of like, oh, in the poem, I get to a point of realizing that I've never asked my mom if she was stung by a bee. Actually, like by writing that in a poem first, by by getting to that thought in the poem first, by letting the swarm slowly reveal itself to that point, it helped me realize that I should go have a conversation with my mom about, you know, insects. Yeah, and I think that the the idea of the swarm is, you know, formally and thematically, is this idea of, you know, it's the Robert Frost no surprise for the writer, no surprise for the reader. Like if I know what shape an ambiguous, amorphous cloud of ideas is going to take by the end, then it won't really get me there. If I know right. if I know the answer to the question, then there's no point writing the poem about it. Um, and so starting, starting with the concept of a swarm, both visually on the page and thematically, um, and using that to slowly suss out like the one specific insect that, you know, that represents my mom or our relationship or a memory or the, the, the question of what memory means was something that I don't think I could have got to without that form. Like I couldn't, I couldn't have talked to my father without writing a letter because he's not here. Right. I couldn't have questioned my mother without thinking about experiences she may or may not have had prior to asking the question so there's right like to some extent it's not exactly an empathetic exercise but it is the sort of right like it's it's circling around what that thought process must look like it's circling around you know getting from the sort of broad strokes the maybe general picture of a particular topic into what it means to that individual person yeah exactly and you know and i mean i think uh, it, it it probably was more obvious to to readers than I even realized when I started writing. But you know the idea, like the queen bee, like you know why why use bees? Why use a swarm of swarming right. insects? You know for this poem, well, it ends up being about my mom and you know like the <laughs> the, the queen at the core of the hive here, right? Uh, the one individual. Yeah, exactly. The one the one that matters. Uh, yeah. You know to to the existence of the poem. Yeah. Well, Kent, it's been great talking to you. I think we we're. Definitely closing on the end of our time, but I just want to thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Claire. It has been it has been a joy, and uh, yeah, you. I, I thank you for bringing all of the insight to 
the works that I'm glad hopefully merited those <laughs> those lovely readings. Well, to learn more about Kent and his writing, visit kentlatham.weebly.com. You can catch Story Behind the Story the first Friday of every month from 5 to 6 p.m. on KSQD 90.7 FM. To share your thoughts on this or other shows, drop me a line at clara at ksqd.org. The Story Behind the Story is produced for KSQD 90.7 FM by me, Clara Shirley Appel. Our sound engineer is Linear Sammons. He also wrote our theme.